Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, uh, speaking to you not from an East German gulag um, po police prison cell. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, right. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm actually traveling today, uh, actually up near Yosemite. Uh, this was the only place I could get that that actually was supposed to have Wi-Fi. It didn't have Wi-Fi. I'm doing this off of my phone's hotspot. So we are doing this with shoestring and bubblegum, folks. Hopefully it makes it through the day. Uh, but I'm here for another weekly market recap featuring my good friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts, fresh from a hot run in the yeah. blistering Houston, Texas sun. Lance, how you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm, well, I'm hot. That's what it is. Yeah, there's <laughs> definitely heat index today is, is, is up there. So yeah, if I'm still sweating a little bit. Uh, sorry about that. All right. Well, look, between, you know, the low bandwidth, uh, the fact that Lance might pass out from heat stroke, um, let's see how far we can get through this this week. But this shows our commitment to you, folks. These are the lengths we will go to to bring you your weekly market recap. Now, Lance, uh, we have a bit of a down week uh, so far. Um, recording here on Friday, markets look like they're popping a little bit probably not nearly as much to to make up for how much the the uh, the week has dropped so far. Um, you have been saying for many weeks now this market has just been raging so you know far so quickly here that some sort of pullback, uh, I believe last week you used the words overdue, uh, yeah. was overdue. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you've been warning us that uh, you, know, you sort of expect a little bit of a cool off of about a three to 10% or so in the market. Uh, could we be seeing the start of that here? Yeah, and it's very possible. And August and September are pretty notorious for that anyway. Just um, normally you have the month of August tends to be weak in the first half of the month. It tends to be a little bit stronger second half of the month historically. September tends to be the weaker month of, of, of the year as well. Just that's where, and also, you know, September, October, uh, for some reason is when you have all your market crashes, you know, 1987, 1929, 2008, they all kind of occurred in October. I don't know why October is a month. It just tends to be the month that just happens. Um, but yeah, the, the, look, the market was extremely stretched and, and we had some, some things that were setting up here. I'll tell you what, let me just, let's just look at a technical chart. First of all, what, what you'll notice is, so, you know, this is the market that, you know, it's really kind of since, you know, a, April of this year. And uh, you kind of, kind of see the sell-off in March. And that was that, you know, obviously that Silicon Valley bank, you know, default issue and, you know, oh my gosh, you know, here's the financial event and this is going to be terrible. And the Fed steps in, they start their bank bailout program. And since then, the markets have been pretty much off to the races on this whole AI chase, right? Artificial intelligence. And, you know, importantly, just, you know, you can just see here, and particularly since May and really kind of early June, the market got very deviated from the 200-day moving average. And, you know, importantly, as, as the markets were, were starting to go up here over the last week or so, and, and this is really kind of more of the, uh, of the you know, kind of the point that you're looking for. Wait, let me get the right uh, indicator here. Um, you had this negative divergence that was occurring. If you'll notice, the, um, uh, the MACD had, had been turning a bit lower here as well, and, and it was declining even as the market was rising. You saw the same thing in the relative strength index, and, and you saw it also uh, really kind of declining from its previous peak, even though the market was still rallying, relative strength was falling. And that was really a good indication that the market underneath the surface was beginning to weaken a bit. 
And so a correction was likely. And so we said, hey, you know, uh, you know, probably we're going to have a three to a five percent correction in here initially. And that would really kind of bring the 20 day moving average. That's this orange line into focus. That's first level of support. Now, today in particular, so we broke that 20 day moving average on Wednesday, um, rallying back to it on Friday. So it, it'll be important that if this market's going to, you know, stop correcting here, we get back above that 20 day moving average. If we fail here on Friday and then Monday we open up weaker, then the 50 day moving average is going to become the next target. That's about 4,400 on the S&P. So, you know, a couple hundred points off the S&P and just a mild correction here. Uh, wouldn't be surprising if you look back here in kind of May and June, April, you know, we had a regular retest of the 50-day moving average. So, uh, you know, a pullback to the 50-day here wouldn't be surprising at all. Uh, it's going to bring the bears out of the closet and they're going to be saying, okay, see, I told you it was all a bull trap and, you know, here's the bear market starting again. No, it's just a correction. Here's the here's the, the tricky part. We can correct all the way back to 4,100, which is that 200-day moving average. That's still a correction in a bull market. That's still not a bearish market action. Now we break the 200-day, fail there, and start to go lower. That's a bigger concern. But between and, and you know, but the market had gotten so extended above the 200-day moving average, we can have a 10% correction. By the way, completely normal in any given year. Back to the 200-day moving average, and that's completely normal. You should expect that to occur. So nothing to be fearful of. But just that's how far the market's gotten ahead of itself in the first six months of this year. All right. Um, so kind of condensing what you just said there, you, you're not really going to start sweating, at least not not from a run uh, <laughs> about these markets uh, until we're kind of flirting with that 200 day moving average. Yeah. And what I'm, I'm actually looking forward is I'd love to see this market come down to the 50 or even the 100 day moving average, which is this blue line here. Um, I'd love to see a correction back into that range. And, uh, and if it stabilizes and holds there, it turns back up. We get some of these indicators deeply oversold, get the MACD back to an oversold level. It starts to turn up, give us a buy signal. That's a great buy, you know, kind of buying opportunity to put money to work on the equity side for the end of the year. And, and the end of the year will probably be fairly strong. I would expect a fairly strong upside October, November, December. Uh, the reason is, first of all, that's a seasonally strong period of the year. But more importantly, you've got a lot of fund managers, hedge funds, et cetera, that are behind the curve this year, me included, um, because we didn't own just seven stocks. So there's there's going to be a performance chase into the end of the year um, with these managers allocating money to markets to try to play catch up you know, on performance, because when they report performance at the end of the year, that's going to mean their bonuses, their jobs, and whether or not they get more inflows of capital next year or not. All right. And, and as you've said, you know, in this this program before, Lance, um, technically, just looking at data, years mm -hmm. in which we've had a strong run up like we've had in the markets for the first half of the year, they tend to finish the markets higher. Right, right. now, you and I have talked ad nauseum. We will continue to in this uh, video, I'm sure as well, that there's a whole flotilla of macro risks out there. So, mm -hmm. you know, presuming that they don't exert themselves in a way that disrupts everything, you know, you're basically saying, look, the, the preponderance of history is that we may actually have a good, a, you know, good end of this year. And so, like you said, you're, you're hoping actually that we come down and maybe test the, the 50 day, the hundred day moving average, because it'll create some good entry points for right. you to ride that, that recover or that, 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 I don't want to call it a recovery, but that, that um, renewed momentum into the end of the year 
again, provided that the macro part of the picture doesn't throw curveballs away. Well, yeah, and look, and that's look. This is this is always the the, the case, right? Um, what we're talking about here is purely technical. So technical doesn't doesn't account for economics or fundamentals or valuations. None of that. What what all technical analysis tells you is what the the herd mentality of the market is doing. Um, you know, you got to as we've talked about before. You know, the market the 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 market is just a big organic pool of of people, and you got half of them that are betting on the on the upside. Half of them are betting on the downside. Theoretically, it's not really that way because you've always got a buyer and a seller. But right now, you the preponderance of people are, are betting on the upside. And so, you know, you take a look at options, what's happening. I mean, it, it's extreme. This morning in our investment committee meeting, we spent a lot of time evaluating buying put options on our some of our portfolios because the cost of hedging, you know, buying insurance is so cheap that you can hedge an entire portfolio for very a very small amount of money against you know fairly small declines and and you know that's not normal but that's the exuberance that we have going on in the markets right now there's just nobody really expecting downside so unless something shows up and again you know this is always the thing that we have to remember is that the technicals are always right in the short term until something shows up that not, that that none of the market is expecting Right. And so are the markets expecting some weaker economic data? Yes. Is the, is the Fed, is the market expecting the Fed to hike rates maybe one more time? Probably. You know, all that stuff's already priced in. The market's already telling you that's not, not a concern. The concern is something shows up that we don't expect, some type of event. You know, you go to bed on Thursday night, you wake up on Friday and Lehman Brothers goes out of business. Right. That's that's the kind of thing that that derails the markets. And throws all this analysis out the window. Then you're then you have to change your game plan and work with what's what's going on. But right now the technicals are very strong, very bullish. There's no reason to fight them at the moment. And yes, there is some economic data out there that is certainly concerning and worrisome. And we'll certainly talk about some of that this morning. But there's also some anecdotal evidence that suggests that maybe the worst is behind us. And we can also talk about that as well. Great. Well, let, let's do both. Um, first off, I want to maybe pat myself on the back a little bit, because uh, I think it was first two weeks ago where I started pointing out the fact that it looked like downside insurance was really cheap, and yep. you seem to be continuing to corroborate that. Yep. Um, now, the market has come off a little bit this week, but prices are still cheap. The, 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 the puts and whatnot uh, haven't yeah. adjusted too much yet. No, no, you haven't had a big enough correction to really move price. Yeah, I mean, uh, prices of puts in June of next year, as an example, they went up a little bit this morning. But you know, you're going to need a much bigger correction to really push the cost of insurance higher. And again, you know, what is how is how is insurance priced? Right, insurance is priced by demand, and and right now nobody wants to buy put options. Everybody wants to buy call options. So there's you know, call options will us money puts, not so much because there's no demand for them. And what drives price is supply and demand. And there's no demand, so price is very cheap. But that's also the contrarian nature of the market. I don't want to buy calls here because everybody is long calls, which tells you that probably the herd is going to be wrong at some point. The only question is when. And that could be, again, you know, much, you know, six months from now and nine months from now, a year from now, you know, that's where they'll potentially be wrong. And that's why you want to kind of buy yourself some time with options so that they don't expire worthless on you. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So just sort of underscoring again for folks what we're talking about. When you have the ability to purchase meaningful insurance for a low price, you should pay attention, 
right? Especially given that we have this market right now that doesn't seem to care about all of these big macro concerns that Lance and I talk about so often. Um, so when you get presented with an opportunity to buy yourself some safety, it's probably something you should think about. Um, if you've not, you know, bought put options yourself I'm, before, I'm not encouraging anybody to go out and, and do this with no experience. Uh, if you're thinking about looking into this more, I just highly recommend talking to a financial advisor who understands how to use these from a hedging standpoint and get their opinion in terms of what makes most sense for you, given your current portfolio, how it's allocated, your risk profile, all that type of stuff. Um, but Lance, I, I want to talk briefly about a, a piece that you wrote this week. Um kind of on this theme, which is that the bullish indicators are so bullish now, I think they're almost bearish to you, right? Yeah, they are. It's, it's funny, though, because I wrote, the, I actually wrote the inverse of this article in June of last year. Um, in June of last year, you know, I wrote this article, I said, you know, investors are so bearish that it's bullish. And of course, you know, in, in June and July, we had a, 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 I'm sorry, July and August, we had that very big, you know, 25% rally. Everybody was getting back bullish again. And then the market sold off into October and we got very, and, and bearish sentiment, you got more bearish. So it's not a perfect indicator by any stretch of the imagination. But since October, obviously, that bearish sentiment has been fueling this market rally higher. Now, what's interesting is, is that just in the last couple of months, that um, you know, we have, and, and again, you kind of, and you kind of still share my chart. I forgot this whole time I've had this chart up. I apologize. But um, you can see that just since May, this market really kind of took off in a sprint. And up to May, bearish sentiment was still pretty bearish. It's now gone full raging bullish with just this move over the last couple of months. And, and so now we're getting to the point that historically, um, what happens is, is that sentiment is getting to a level that, that historically normally, um, equates to market peaks. And, and again, this goes this this also goes back to the put option insurance as well. Just talk about this for a second ago. Is that the reason puts are so cheap is because everybody's bullish, right? right. And that's what sentiment's telling you. Nobody thinks the market's going to go down, so I don't want to hedge. And you know, and, and that's why volatility is low. Nobody's expecting a crash. So you know, there's nothing, there's nowhere to go but up from here. That's the mentality. And, and of course, the herd is always wrong at extremes. You know, the, 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 the you know, professional and retail investors are notorious for, for selling bottoms and buying tops. And that's exactly what you're seeing right now is that you've got this extreme kind of bullish sentiment and, you know, um, investors are literally all in the pool. So if there's nobody left to buy, what happens when sellers show up? Right. Um, or what happens when there's no marginal buyer left to buy at the latest price, right? Right. That's, well, that's what I mean. The same thing, yeah. 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 So, and, and that's really wanted, what I wanted to dive into here was exactly this point that sort of the herd tends to become most enthusiastic or most passionate, we'll say, yeah. uh, at, at really right at the wrong time, right? Now, it can last for a while. It doesn't necessarily mean this is all going to head over tomorrow, nose over tomorrow, but it sounds to me like your confidence that it could goes up the more crowded the herd is all in into one side here, right? Well, yeah. Now, now look, also, too, this, do, this doesn't mean that I'm not saying the market's about to crash, right? That's not what I'm saying at all. What bullish sentiment tells you is that you're probably due for that 3 to 5 to 10% correction. And that'll pull a lot of the sentiment out of the market very, very quickly. And if you go back and look at sentiment indicators versus the bull market that started in 2009, we had lots of corrections along the way from extremely bullish conditions. 
and you know they were contained within 10 to 15%. You know, 2015, 2016, you had you know 15, 18% corrections. Um, you know, 2010, 2011, you had you know 10, 12% corrections. You know, those type of ways. So you had decent corrections along the way, and that reduced that bullish sentiment from bullish back to bearish. But you know what was important is is that the last year the sentiment was as bearish as it was during the financial crisis of 2008. It was extremely negative bearish sentiment which again, as we talked about then, was gonna provide the fuel for that bull market rally when it occurred. And that's what we've been really seeing since October. Okay, yeah. Um, so again, uh, you're not calling for a market crash and you have been calling for a pullback, which might yep. be in the process right now. And we'll talk about your trades in a bit, but I assume you're not making too many long buys right now, given your growing confidence of this, Right. three to ten percent pullback no 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 we uh, you know we've been talking about here for weeks you know we've been buying over the last three months um you know we bought some regional banks when when you know during the whole uh you know financial bank crisis back in march we bought some regional banks there um we bought some energy on the dip uh, that we had there we had added to some of our mega cap stocks and more recent uh you know recent months heading into earnings season we you know added to apple and amazon and microsoft and google and those type of stocks so we've we've already been increasing exposure we're still underweight equities unfortunately um i wish i was at target weight or overweight um from earlier this year it would have been a much better call but again there was so much uncertainty we couldn't really afford to put our clients at that much risk. And, you know, unfortunately, the markets are did a lot better than even we assumed they would um, because of this kind of psychological push. So now we're a bit behind the curve, but we're still holding a lot of cash. And that's why, you know, we're talking about this correction that we've been looking for saying, look, you know, we're better off waiting for a correction to add additional exposure to the portfolio. And, and you know, here's the, the, you know, the funny thing about it is that the market could correct back to where we started talking about a potential correction, which was really kind of beginning of July. Um, market correct all the way back to that point, which is around 4,400-ish. We're currently 4,523. So we correct back to 4,400. And you go, well, Lance, you could have just bought at 4,400. And yeah, Brown tripped it now back to where it was. But the risk reward at 4,400 on this pullback will be better than it was back in July because right. now I've worked off some of the overbought condition. Stocks are oversold to a degree. Sentiment has gotten a little less exuberance. And now that gives me fuel for the market to advance to the upside from here. All right. All right. Um, we talked a little bit about that last week, yeah. but I'm glad you reiterated this week. Because again, it shows how an experienced, seasoned financial advisor sees the tape, which can be very different from just the armchair person. Um, and actually mean different things. Yeah. yeah, let's be honest. We're all just guessing at this thing. So, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, but you have a lot more experience base to guess from. Um, all right. Well, look, um, I, I find it interesting that this, um, well, at least the weakness we saw this week uh, is coming, you know, during earnings seasons where we're now getting some, you know, really big names uh, getting out there and, and announcing um, and it's been interesting. You know, it's it's been kind of a mixed bag from what I've been able to tell. Um, some big beats, some pretty big disappointments from certain sectors. Um, this week, we had two big companies, uh, Apple and Amazon, report. Before we talk about those specifically, can you just tell us now that we're this far into earnings season, um, what it's telling you? I know when it first started, you were saying, hey, the data we're getting is maybe things weren't as bad as, as folks feared. Do we still have that sentiment or is maybe some of this pullback being people saying, ah, you know what, the guidance isn't what I'd like it to be? 
No, it's actually okay. I mean, you know, we got an 80% beat rate so far and, you know, not surprising. Again, we talked about this before, you know, we lower earnings until everybody gets over the bar. Um, what is interesting is that companies aren't being rewarded for beats um, as much as usual. Um, yeah, we're seeing a few companies that, you know, like Amazon's up, you know, uh, you know, seven, eight percent today, you know, after their earnings. But remember, before when companies were beating earnings, they were up like 20 percent. So the rewards are not as high as they were. So in other words, a lot of the expectations so far are, you know, the, the companies that are beating estimates are going, yeah, you're beating them, but not by a lot. Um, Apple did OK, but, you know, but their guidance was kind of soft. Amazon, Amazon is up. But, you know, they beat earnings and estimates, but it really wasn't by a huge amount. And these are stocks that are trading at pretty expensive premiums to fair value. So, in other words, what we're seeing is, is kind of really what we expected is that companies are, are kind of meeting their guidelines. And a lot of the a lot of the earnings were already priced in to the company. So, you know, the, you know, buyers are going, OK, that's great. You did this, but I've already kind of paid for that. All right. Um, well, let's let's talk about some of what we are seeing here. Um, first off, uh, you know, we're seeing we're seeing certain industries really disappoint, um, and it seems that a lot of sort of shipping and logistics companies um, are are you know giving kind of grim forecasts. I don't know the company itself, but I've I've been seeing headlines about like. You know, companies that make cardboard, you know, for shipping boxes and stuff like that are giving really bad uh, estimates. Um, obviously, Yellow, the short haul trucking company, uh, just declared bankruptcy. Um, so we're definitely seeing, it seems, weakness in companies that are in the business of shipping real things from point A to point B. Um, some people may take that as a sign that the, the, the circulatory system of the economy is is slowing down enough to, to hurt those businesses. Um Love to hear any thoughts you have on that, but I also want to talk about Apple really briefly. So Apple, I think, somewhat surprised people um, with weak iPhone sales. Um, it's their third consecutive quarter of declining revenue. Um, yeah. I'm, how material is that? And, and I guess, like, how long until the market realizes that Apple is not a high growth company anymore? That's the big question. I mean, you know, there's two things that go on with Apple, and this is the conversation. So here's the conversation that we have in our office, right? Uh, so Mike and I were just talking about Apple this morning, in particular, because again, exactly the same thing. This is a $3 trillion company um, in market cap value, right? And so how do you justify valuing a company at $3 trillion that's growing earnings at a very slow pace, growing revenue at a very slow pace? This is a very mature company. They simply can't grow earnings and revenue fast enough to justify the multiples being paid for this company. But then you have to step back for a moment um, and take a look at retail flows as an example. And, and there was a, a, a great chart out earlier this morning I put on Twitter uh, talking about retail flows. And, and, you know, investors are just piling in to ETFs, right? And, and so no longer are individual retail investors buying individual stocks. They just buy the whole ETF. It's just easier. It's cheaper. This is what they're all told. You know, I sign up for Robinhood or whatever. I just buy ETFs. And you've got over 300 ETFs that all own Apple. So if everybody is putting their money into ETFs and you have these big flows in ETFs, which you do, you have a much bigger flow into ETFs than you do individual stocks. We've talked about this before, 30 cents of every dollar goes into the top 10 stocks. So 
despite the fact whether or not Apple is growing fast enough or not, the stock price keeps going up because of all the inflows into ETFs. And so we've got this real kind of bastardized market that really isn't based on fundamentals or earnings or anything else. It's based on flows now because of what happens with ETFs versus every other market. And this is why we were talking about earlier this year, seven stocks outperforming the rest of the market. This wasn't because everybody was just piling into seven stocks. It's because they were buying ETFs that were market cap weighted into those seven stocks. Yeah, we've talked about this. I think I've used the term a lot that uh, I think Michael Green and Bill Fleckenstein used, right? The giant mindless robot, right? Yeah. Money just comes in and it just gets brainlessly allocated because you have these algorithms or the weightings of the ETFs themselves. It's just yeah. predetermined math. To your right. point, 30 cents of every dollar that comes in goes into these certain stocks. And Apple, I think, correct me if you think differently, but I mean, Apple, I think, we can argue it may be the world's most overowned stock, right? It's kind of in almost every ETF that's out there, right? Yeah, no, it's funny. You'll you'll find mid cap stocks that own Apple. You'll find you know mid cap ETFs that own you know. It, it's just you know it's it's the the position of managers going. If I want people to buy my ETF, right, I got to have performance. If my if my ETF isn't performing, I can have the coolest looking ETF on the planet. <laughs> excuse me. And, you know, it's got some great, you know, fundamental gadgetry behind it. And I only buy value stocks and blah, blah, blah. So I can make you a great pitch for one, but if it's not performing, nobody's going to put money in, right? Because everybody wants whatever's performing the most. So these managers, they go, well, if I want my ETF to perform, I better own Apple, Microsoft, Google, you know, NVIDIA and, and a couple other big names like that. And then I'll put all my other stuff in here as well. But the big cap, names in that are, are the big funds. And this is this is the whole this is the whole scam with the ESG ETFs, which ESG sounded great on, on the surface. And we said back then it's like ESG is fine until it doesn't perform. And then everybody's gonna go, ESG, what? I'm I'm into whatever's now it's AI, right? ESG, what was that? It's now AI. ESG is is now you know no longer performing because everybody wants to be in AI because that's the new hip thing that we're doing now. Um, you know, but back then we said, look, you know, ESG is they were just taking an S&P index fund and then they were just changing one name. And BlackRock was the most famous. They charged you four times as much to buy their ESG ETF. The top 10 holdings were exactly the same as the S&P index, except for one. And that was they, ins they inserted BlackRock stock into the top 10 holdings so that every time people piled into the ESG fund, it was boosting the price of BlackRock which was good for, you know, the, the CEO. Very big, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so good for him. Um, but, and they were charging you four times as much. Well, people caught on to that game pretty quickly and said, I'll just buy an S&P index, get the exact same performance and pay one third of the cost, right? And, and so, but that's the problem is that all these ETFs, oh, I'm an ESG fund or I'm an AI fund or I'm a, you know, I'm a low latency fund or whatever it is. Look at their top 10 holdings. It's the same stocks, you know, across the board. And, and that's just this problem that we have. Now, does that ever get fixed? Does that ever change? I don't know. I guess at some point, maybe people you kind of wake up and go, why well, own an ETF? I'll buy individual stocks. Maybe I can do that. I don't know. I don't know what fix, if anything. Well, well that, and here's where I'm going with this is, is, is there a, how worried are you that we get to a place? Let's just say that Apple stumbles. Right, that it it it's you know it's cooling off here. Like I said, three consecutive quarters of of negative revenue growth. Let's say that gets worse, right? 
and and people suddenly wake up and say, hey, you know what? I don't know if I want to own as much Apple going forward, right? right. Um, and I don't know if that gets manifested in ETFs that suddenly get pressure to decrease their percentage in Apple or whatever, right? But but all of a sudden you have this the stock that is propping up so much of the market. All of a sudden, you know, whether it's forced selling or or reduced buying or whatever, like, is there a risk that this is just sort of one of those Jenga pieces that you say, you know what, we're going to take this thing out here and it it creates a cascade in the market because right now it's just so systemically pervasive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, if, again, it all comes down to performance at the end of the day. And if for some reason, Apple begins to stumble and fall and, um, you know, stocks down 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, um, and it's dragging on performance of these managers, then, yeah, they'll eventually sell them. And when they start selling Apple, then the problem gets worse. And this is the one thing that, you know, you go back and look at, you know, the market last year in 2022, Yes, the markets were down 20, 25%, but there was a lot of stocks in the market that were down 70, 80, 90%. And you know, you look at last year and you go, well, that wasn't nearly as bad as the financial crisis. Well, it actually kind of was. If you strip out those top 10 stocks, the performance of the market was a lot worse in 2022. And that's why the average retail investor was down 35% in 2022 versus the market being down just. 20 percent-ish by the end of the year. And that was because those top 10 mega cap stocks were holding up the market. We kind of wrote a piece on this about passive investing and use the iceberg analogy. You know, the top 10 stocks are the part of the iceberg that you see above the waterline. What you don't see is this mountain, this massive mountain of ice that's below the surface. And that was the other 90 percent of the stocks in the index that were dragging down a whole lot more but, you know, again, it was that illusion of the passive investing that kept the market from being a lot worse in 2022. Um, and it's also been the thing that's driving the market this year as well. So if that ever changes, yeah, I think you got real problems. Yeah. And and again, we're talking about Apple, but, you know, there's a couple other stocks that that punch well above their weight as well. You know, Microsoft, mm -hmm. a few other ones here that, again, if, if, if any one of them or even worse, a collection of them, you know, where to start stumbling. Um, I mean, it could really create some pretty big ripple effects. Um, and to your part about how, your point about how, um, you know, in 2022, the, the markets weren't down, the indices weren't down nearly as much as many individual stocks, right? And that's because it was these big stocks that were kind of buoying everything, right? Yeah. And so that does work in reverse, where you could have a, a market where the bottom 90% of stocks are doing good, doing doing quite well, but if these top 10 stocks, you know, for some reason, if the bloom comes off that rose, they can bring the indices down way more than you would expect because right. of in their pervasiveness. Look, I'm not not predicting this is going to happen, but I, 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 I do look at how dependent the total market value is on these very small number of stocks. And when you look at some of them and say, look, they yeah, they were high flyers. And and you know and and deserved the growth multiple that they were given. Um, I think for some of them now you can look at them and say I don't know it's pretty hard to argue they should be getting that growth multiple. Now they're they're ferociously profitable and it's not like they're going to go bankrupt tomorrow or anything like yeah. that. But you know, market value is a function of earnings and and the multiple for projected growth. And if we all of a sudden wake up and say you know what we got to bring the bring down those projected growth multiples. For these stocks, it could really 
surprise and hurt the markets pretty substantially. So anyways, folks don't seem to be too worried about that, given, you know, yeah. how the market's been partying. But it, it seems like one of those, you know, less sort of fundamental, but more sort of technical, you know, uh, hidden minds out there that who knows, you know, maybe could come back to bite the market. So let's, let's talk about Amazon real quick before we, we wrap up the earnings part. So they uh, delighted markets, um, you know, this morning, I think they were up like over 9%. Maybe that's come down a little bit, but you know, that's a big jump for a stock with that much market value. It's a lot of market value created overnight. It seems from what I could could tell briefly skimming the reports that it's mostly due to profitability in their, AWS business, their their web hosting business, um, uh, and it's uh, or, or you know their data cloud business. Um, it, it does not seem to be being driven by commerce. You know, it's not like hey, people are buying so much stuff on it. You know, goods on Amazon.com that we're 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 getting these you know uh, uh, beat performances or, or, or rosy uh, forecasts that we're putting out there. Um, but that being said. I did see a headline that just said, hey, did Amazon just cancel the recession, right? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And, and in general, you know, to my earlier point about, you know, the, the cardboard companies and the logistics companies, I mean, it does sort of seem that we're seeing, or, or do, do you agree that it seems like we're seeing the companies that represent kind of real commerce happening in the in the world do seem to be struggling here in this earnings season? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, kind of yes and no. I mean, it's it's really what what you kind of pick. I mean, for instance, heavy truck sales are off to all time highs, right? So you know, there's a lot of demand for heavy trucks, and you take a look at FedEx stock as an example. FedEx is doing fantastic, you know, stock price wise. Uh, Caterpillar just hit all time highs. Um, you know, that's one of your main drivers of industry industry, right? Caterpillar, uh, they make you know, trucks and tractors and plows and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, their, their stock's just kind of moon shooting right now. So, so there's- Sorry to interrupt, but on Caterpillar, is that like a direct beneficiary of like all the stimulus spending from the- Yeah, of course. Reduction Act? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So they're, I mean, they're, they're standing right there by the money spigot. Yeah, got it. Exactly. And so, you know, and, and but, but again, the, the shipment, you know, FedEx is doing fine. Uh, UPS had strike problems. I think they're getting most of that resolved. Um, so they'll probably pay, play a little bit of catch up here, you know, price wise. But you know, like I said, there's you know there's there's a lot of evidence that you and, and again you know going back to to Amazon, yeah, a lot of their a lot of the reason for the jump in the stock price today is the earnings were a lot better, revenue was up, um, you know, across the board, but a lot of it was twenty seven thousand job cuts, a lot of cost cutting internally. They can they consolidated some of their businesses. They Reduce spending in areas like telehealth and other stuff that's like that, that was non profitable. Uh, so they've really done some cost management, and that's really you know cleaned up their bottom line a bit. And that that that's really kind of what that's really kind of the main you know uh, driver for the stock price jump is this you know they've really done a good job of managing their their expense side of their business um, and helping push them more towards profitability and, and higher margins. So you know that was good news. 
But, you know, there's certainly some anecdotal evidence, you know, of, of things like, you know, we can certainly pick up these kind of one-off things like yellow freight lines, you know, going out, of, you know, filing bankruptcy, certainly not a good thing. But take a look at companies like, uh, you, you know, Union Pacific and the railroads, you know, they're doing fine. Um, so it's kind of really hit and miss within the economy. But again, you know, a part of it goes back to where the money is being spent. And a lot of that Inflation Reduction Act is, you know, resulting in a lot of that push, right? Uh, federal expenditures, I just uh, put a chart, uh, uh, an article out on this uh, just recently, but federal expenditures are, have turned up sharply over the course of the last couple of quarters, which corresponds with the stronger economic growth reading that we're getting uh, this year in particular. But a lot of that's just coming from federal expenditures actually hitting the markets now. All right. And does that federal expenditures number that you're talking about, does that also include interest payments on the debt or is that separate? No, that's that's just gross federal expenditures. So yeah, interest payments on the debt are included in that. Okay, which we also know. So yeah. you have to haircut some of that increase because it's yeah. not going into the economy. It's just going to creditors. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's that's a good segue then into the next news item I wanted to talk about with you, which was uh, the Fitch downgrade of America's credit rating. Yeah. Right. Kind of came out of nowhere, right, for a lot of people. Um, not a surprise, but, you know, as soon as that came out, you had kind of a mobilization of of the, the D.C. economists and the Wall Street, you know, uh, all of Wall Street, right, basically saying, hey, this is reckless and this was not necessary. And there's a whole bunch of reasons that we need to caveat this and it shouldn't matter. And, you know, they're, they're trying to sort of talk down or even maybe discredit the decision. Um, I guess the big question I have for you is, is. Uh, is this meaningful in any way uh, to the markets? Um, it's it's a nothing burger. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it, you know, people forget history very quickly. Um, if you go back to 2000, August, August the 11th of 2011, um, we were in the middle of a debt ceiling debate. Um, the market had just picked up basically all time highs a couple of months before that. Uh, when Japan was then hit by a, a earthquake, undersea earthquake that turned into a tsunami that flooded the Fukushima plants, created a nuclear meltdown, and Godzilla came back. So, you know, we got this big crisis in Japan right in the middle of this debt ceiling debate. And at that time, S&P downgraded the U.S. debt from AAA to AA plus with a positive long-term outlook and cited that the reason for doing that is because of this debt ceiling debacle that was going on. And the fact that, you know, despite the fact that we're, you know, passing a debt ceiling, we were not taking any steps to reduce kind of the fiscal irresponsibility in Washington overspending. And uh, interestingly enough, 12 years later, almost to the day, you have Fitch coming out quoting exactly the same thing, saying the reason that they lowered the debt rating from AAA to AA plus with long-term stable outlook is that because of this debt ceiling deal. We passed this debt ceiling deal with no cuts to the budget, no reduction of spending, you know, no real controls. We haven't passed a budget, period, since Obama took office in 2008. There has been no fiscal responsibility in Washington since 2008, we continue to fund government based on what we call these continuing resolutions. And every time we pass a continuing resolution, that increases the federal spending by 8% automatically across every budget. So whatever your budget was last year, it goes up by 8% this year automatically. 
uh, every time we pass these continuing resolutions. This is why the debt continues to spiral over 32 trillion in debt and climbing. And this is why the debt continues to increase. So, you know, this is, is, is not a surprising issue. And, and again, if the U.S. was a corporation, it would be a triple C rated junk bond because we spend a lot more than we bring in in revenue. But because we can print our own currency and we're the premier store of reserve currency everywhere in the world, and that's not going to change, that's why you keep getting, that's why you have the AA plus. But again, this doesn't change the dynamics of the bond market. What sets the price of the bond market is supply and demand for bonds that's driven by the credit markets. And as long as the US is a reserve currency, which it will be for a long time, because there's nowhere else to have a reserve currency. And, and that's just, we keep talking about this ad nauseum, um, but that's not gonna change. So the, the credit rating means absolutely nothing. Now, go back to 2011. At that time, when the market down, when the S&P downgraded the debt, at that point, the stock market fell about eight to 10%. Over the course of the next year, it was up 20% from that low, that kind of knee-jerk reaction to the downgrade. Um, yields on the 10-year treasury rose a bit. We had a kind of knee-jerk reaction higher uh, at the time of the downgrade, obvious at that point. Over the next year, yields fell almost, almost two, full basis, uh, two full percentage points uh, over the next 12 months. So there was a huge rally in 10-year treasuries over the next couple of months. Uh, the dollar rallied sharply. It was up about 8%, uh, sorry, it was up about 3%, which is a big move for a currency. Um, and, and stocks did fantastic. So this, at the end of the day, this downgrade will mean absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. Okay. So yeah, sounds like you're saying the S&P downgrade really didn't do anything except raise eyebrows for a short period of time. And then we had a massive rally in bonds, stock market did well, dollar strengthened, you know, yeah. <laughs> all the things that that people didn't think it was going to do when that exactly. warning was, was initiated. Um, okay. Um, well, okay, that, that's a good segue then into my next questions for you, which is, okay, you know, we actually are seeing bond yields continuing to rise here. They actually spiked pretty dramatically this week, maybe in some response yeah. to the, the Fitch downgrade. No, it was, uh, it was all in response to the downgrade. That, that's, that was the whole thing. Okay, so two, two questions around that, that that folks are asking right now. I'm seeing a lot of comments and emails around this. One is, whoa, like how high is this going to go, right? Um, I'm going to I'm going to intuit. You might think, hey, it's kind of a sugar high, right? People kind of panic from the headlines. It's going to come back down at some point. Um, but increasing number of questions of, hey, is the TLT trade in trouble, right? No. Like, okay. So if you can, can you talk about that? Because I've gotten enough emails that I know that there are enough folks that would love to hear your latest update on that. Well, I mean, look, this keeps coming back. We're in the we're in the middle of a transition period for for bonds. I mean, this is this is, and you know this has been something that we've been talking about for a while. The dynamics haven't changed of what drives bond prices. It's economic growth, inflation, and wages. At the end of the day, wages are coming down, uh, inflation's coming down, economic growth is going to slow more, and that's going to drive inflation lower. Uh, sorry, that's going to drive interest rates lower. And, and interest rates are simply a function of economic growth and wages. So, and inflation. If those are coming down, interest rates are going to come down. But that takes time. See, everybody keeps expecting like, oh, I'm going to buy TLT today and I'm going to make a whole bunch of money tomorrow. No, this is something that's going to take 12, 18, 24, 36 months to work out. And you've got to get the Fed to start cutting rates here somewhere. So you're buying in advance of you know, what's going to happen over the next 12, 18, 36 months. And if you're in this camp thinking a recession's coming, 
that's exactly what's going to drop rates lower. So, you know, the only the only dynamic, and, and again, I, I heard some guys out this week and they're talking about, oh, interest rates should go to 5%. Uh, 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 oh, what's his name? Um, he shorted the 30-year treasury this week, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But anyway, um, he's a hedge fund, uh, a hedge fund manager. Is it Ackman? Yeah, yeah, Ackman. So he shorted the 30-year bond. So I got all these emails like, well, Ackman shorting the 30-year bond. Yeah, for a trade, that probably makes a lot of sense. And But if you're shorting, you know, if I'm buying options to short the 30-year bond, I'm expecting something to happen over the course of the next couple of weeks or to yeah. a month or two. Days to weeks, yeah. Yeah. And I'm probably hedging another position in my portfolio that, you know, I want to hedge off. That's not my bet. My bet is longer term that says, look, it's a function of debt. You have a record level of debt in the economy, period, across the board, you know, whether it's credit, uh, whether it's the treasury debt, consumer debt, whatever. You know, you've got just a regular level of debt that was all built upon very low interest rates. So if interest rates go to five or six or seven percent and not even stay there, but just think about this. We had interest rates go up to four percent, four and a quarter percent earlier this year, and you had a bank crisis, right? Because what happened was, as interest rates went up, it suppressed all the collateral in the banks. What do you think happens to the banking system at five percent? What do you think happens to the banking system at six percent? What do you think happens to the stock market at five or six percent? If I go put money into a money market account at five or six percent interest, why do I need to be in stocks, right? So the point is, is that. If rates start rising that level, you better bet your booty that Janet Yellen's already been on the phone with Jerome Powell going, oh, what are we going to do here? Yeah. Right. And that's why they immediately came out and said, this is ridiculous. And, you know, this is stupid. The debt downgrade. Oh, by the way, they said exactly the same thing. Ben Bernanke said exactly the same thing in 2011. He says it's ridiculous. And they're using outdated data on this downgrade. But the reason is, is because that spike in rates is dangerous. And it's not going to last long if it does. If you know, I won't be surprised if this doesn't. If this little spike in rates doesn't completely reverse in the next month. Okay. All right. Um, thank you for that. Hopefully, that gives some of the people that were having a little bit of uh, heartburn over this uh, a little oh, no. bit of comfort. But it sounds like you are you're still committed. You are not changing your strategy at all it's, in terms of your bond. Right. But but look, it's about fun. Look, this is a fundamental trade, right? You know, and you've got to start, you know, you've got to think, and I get all, I've gotten, look, I've gotten tons of emails from people all week. Like every day the, the, the interest rate moves a smidge. It's like, I, always, I get all these emails, but you know, my TLT trade, like, okay, is it a trade or is it an investment, right? You, you've got to make your decision. If you're trading TLT, yeah, you got stopped out. You should have sold it already, right? I'm not in this for a trade. I'm building a position and I've been building it over the course of the last year and I'm going to keep building it. Because I know there is no way around it because of the debt and because of economic growth and inflation, there is no way that the 10-year treasury yield is not going to 1% or less over the course of time over the next two or three years. And I will, I will hold this position until we get to that point, and then I'm going to sell it. I'll sell everything and go long equities. But that's just a function of, of fundamental economic dynamics. You cannot support high interest rates in a de heavily leveraged debt environment that was built on low interest rates. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and and I I, I want to add weight to this, right? Because uh, you've been, and your partner, Michael Leibowitz as well, has been very consistent on this, which is um, the, the big opportunity right now is, A, you get paid an attractive uh, coupon to be in safe bonds right now. Yeah. Um, and there is this, what you think of as a, a 
sizable enough potential for you to feel quite confident about it that rates are going to have to come down once inflation is hopefully under control um, for all the reasons that you mentioned. And, and they're going to come down, in your opinion, relatively substantially, which is going to cause the longer end uh, of, of the bond duration curve to, to really substantially appreciate. So it's one of those great opportunities where you get income while being in safety with potential uh, material upside uh, optionality value. So yeah. you're basically saying that's why I'm committed to this thing, folks. I'm not trading in and out of it on a daily or weekly basis. Right. Yeah. And and look, and and you know, and this the other side. You know, why has the market been rallying? The market the market's rallying because they're betting on the Fed to cut rates. The Fed cuts rates, interest rates come down. <laughs> you know. So if you're betting on a, a Fed rate cut anytime in the next you know 12 to 18 months, yields have to come down. You can't have high yields and Fed cutting rates. That's just not going to work. Yeah. And also, too, like, you know, you say the markets are, are rising because of the expectation of the Fed cutting rates. And that may very well be true. And we've talked about how it, it, when you look at history, when the Fed actually starts cutting rates, stocks actually don't do well, usually for the next couple of quarters. But it, 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 it tends to be one of these buy the rumor, sell the news uh turning points because it's been the rumor of the rate cuts that have powered the markets higher. Once that's happened, there's no more rumor to be driving the, the optimism anymore. It's, it's, it's now, yeah. a, it's now a, an event in the past, right? Yeah. Well, no, it's just like today, the market, you know, uh, was kind of weak this morning when uh, futures were early. And then uh, the employment report came out that showed 189,000 jobs weaker than expectations. Um, and they revised down last month's employment report to 180 something thousand jobs uh, from over 200. Um, and so that immediately the, the market digested that real quick and go, oh, that's bullish because that means job growth is weakening. That means the Fed's closer to cutting rates. So the market goes, oh, well, then we need to push stocks up because if the Fed's going to start cutting rates. That means more liquidity, less, you know, less tightening. So that's good for stocks. And so, but that's, I mean, that's how rapid that these markets are trying to price in expectation for lower rates. Um, man, it's crazy. We, we've, yeah. we've, uh, uh, yeah. Well, we, we, well you know, look, you're just dealing with a casino now, right? It's all about betting on, and, and again, this goes back to the bond trade, right? Everybody wants the, the trade that's going to make them money right now. That's a casino bet, right? So, you know, I, I'm looking for the, the advice that says, okay, Buy this, and tomorrow I'm going to make a whole bunch of money. That's a casino bet. You know, if you're betting, if you're investing, you've got to invest for a long-term time horizon on something that is almost guaranteed. Now, nothing is guaranteed in life, right? Nothing is guaranteed. But there are some things with a very high probability of success given time. Right. And that's just to use your analogy. There's the casino bet on like, okay, what's the roulette wheel going to come up with on the spin? Yeah. But then what you're talking about is, hey, let's bet on the casino. Right. right. Where they, we know they're going to make money over time. Right. The odds are in their exactly. favor in the long haul. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, but it's just interesting. I mean, that's why we buy some companies. Right. You know, we, we buy Apple because Apple just cranks out sales, you know, every quarter. Right. And sometimes it's a little weaker, sometimes a little stronger. Uh, the question for me has always been with Apple is how many people can keep paying two thousand dollars for an iPhone? Right. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, see, and you know, what's interesting is, is that if you talk to people, and I'm just curious, you know, if I ask you, how much of the cell phone market does Apple own? You know, uh, you know, I don't actually. Um, I'm just to throw it out there. I'm going to say less than we expect. But, well, just pick a number between zero and 100 percent. 
you think it's 50%? I mean, everybody has an apple, right? I'm, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess 21%. Yeah, you're, you're pretty close. It's about 25%. Um, but yeah, but again, you know, you, you, but it's, it's, it's like Starbucks, right? There are so many great coffee companies out there. These little mom and pop coffee companies that make so much better coffee than Starbucks, but Starbucks is a household name, right? So if you go into a city, you, you don't know that, you know, you don't know Jenny's coffee shop on the corner, but the Starbucks across the street, you go there because you know, you know, kind of know what you're going to get. And so there's a lot of these companies that, you know, generate sales and revenue. And you think that, oh, everybody goes to Starbucks. It's not really the case. You know, a large majority of people are Android phone users, but it seems like because of the marketing and the kind of a cult personality around Apple and everything else is like, oh, well, everybody's an Apple user, but that's not really the case at all. Um, but you have to then equate that back to valuations. And we talked about this with NVIDIA as an example. NVIDIA to justify 40 times price to sales would have to own the entire GPU market. That's never going to happen. Right. And, you know, and at $3 trillion, you're kind of saying that Apple is going to own the entire smartphone market. Right. And that's not ever going to happen. Right. So, you know, and, and again, you just kind of have to put some of these things in perspective, but just realize that a lot of this valuation that we attribute to it is great marketing. You know, these companies did great marketing, they created a cult of personality around their products. And, and, you know, you think that, they have a much bigger market share than probably they actually do. Yeah, so great point. Um, I just I got to talk about the inverse of that for a second, where you have companies like Google, right? You see, so you mentioned Android phones, right? right? And that's a that's a platform that Google created. Um, you know, much bigger market share of, of the mobile phone market than than Apple. But you look at the search, the online search market share. I don't know what the latest numbers are, but I, I know having looked at it a couple of years ago, I mean, it was in the 90th percentiles. Yeah, right? everybody, yes. Yeah, that is yeah. cool. And so there are some companies out there that actually do have pretty much the entire market captured, which, hey, great, Google's done well as a stock. But like, what are antitrust regulations for? <laughs> You've got, like, how much more of a monopoly do you need? You know, do, do yeah. you need the last couple percentage points till they get to 100? Yeah, you know, that I've had, you know, that's, this is, you know, the problem is that probably, and I've talked about this before, is that, you know, you know, we talk about a lot of the problems that have been created in the economy over the last, you know, decade in particular, um, you know, wealth disparities and CEO pay that's all out of whack. And, you know, th there's a lot of these companies that have become such massive behemoths that, you know, really probably they are a monopoly, but it's hard to say that because, again, the, is, is Meta a monopoly? You know, probably, you know, we should probably think about breaking meta up, right? And, and the, you know, meta and Instagram and, and those other things. But then you say, well, wait a minute. But when you, when you combine meta and Google and you look at the online advertising space, you can say they're definitely a duopoly. Right. Problem. But it's a duopoly. But then you go, but, you know, but, you know, it's about uh, monopolies are saying that basically no other competition come into the market. They price out all of their competition. But then you can say, well, look, there's other, there's other advertising coming. You know, Bing has advertising and search revenue. And, not very much, but <laughs> you know, Yahoo, believe it or not, still out there. You know, it's it's got some gener it's generating some ad and search revenue. So, you know, the problem is, is that I think we probably have to stay, we're gonna have to come back and at some point re-examine what we determine to be a monopoly um, and change some of that law around it if we really want to try to start evening the playing field across companies because. You know, under the current definition of monopoly, it means that there's no other ability for other companies to compete. 
but yet in, in today's world, we have these massive we have these massive companies, but there's still a lot of other companies picking off at the you know kind of the corners of the of the playing field. Yeah, but I mean, look, we we could I don't want to veer too far off uh, yeah. from 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 the focus of of our weekly market recap here, but. Um, you know the, the the way in which, and you know, I used to work for Yahoo, so I I, I know a little bit about this space. Um, the way in which they have lobbied in D.C. and of course these are companies that have spent gazillions of dollars in D.C., so they already have the politicians pretty much in their pocket. But they've said, "Well, is the consumer being hurt here? Look how great Google Search is, right?" And the answer is, is yeah. I mean, search is great, and it's it didn't exist 30 years ago, and it's this wonderful thing that everybody has more or less free access to. Um, but how much better would it be, right? If we had stronger competition that, that could really, you know, keep Google on its toes and continuing to innovate and all that type of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, you know, when, when you have 90 plus percent of the market and you keep a couple of, of straw man guys just stumbling around just so you can point and say, well, that guy actually has 1% of the market, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, we haven't, it's really we haven't just killed everybody market. yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, um, a couple of things you mentioned, I, I, I want to just tick off here uh, before we get uh, to kind of your trades and, and, and the back half of this discussion. Um, is, uh, this is in no particular order, but you, you, you talked about um, how, uh, you know, a lot of Amazon's uh, profit beat came from their cost cutting when there was a yep. large part that had to do with with layoffs and with getting rid of contractors and whatnot. Um, I was having a conversation last night explaining to somebody really what Elon Musk has done at Twitter or now X, right? Um, and how I think it's going to have really long-lasting repercussions, certainly in Silicon Valley, but but probably eventually elsewhere, where, you know, when he took over Twitter, he very quickly got rid of 75% of the workforce. And look, he's a polarizing figure. I'm not saying you have to like him or, or you know, be a fan of what he's doing. But Twitter's still out there, and it's it's he's been you know sharing data relatively recently, saying that they had their their highest number of monthly average users and monthly average you know time spent on Twitter and whatnot. The company hasn't died, and I think he's really defined like what an essential worker for a company is, and he's caused companies to say, look, we can probably get along with fewer employees, probably substantially fewer employees than we've thought for the the, the you know past long time. And and so my question to you, Lance, is is do you see us forget about the the risk of a recession and layoffs that that might force uh, on companies? Putting that aside, assuming it doesn't materialize, do we do we think that companies, at least maybe in the tech space, are are going to move forward being a little bit leaner and meaner, given what Musk has shown as possible? Yeah, I think well that I think AI is going to do a, a yeah the, the yeoman's <laughs> work on on that front. I mean. And, and again, it's, you know, the big, the big thing with AI is, is that, you know, look, we replaced a lot of, you know, low end wage workers with kind of robots, you know, retail and, uh, you know, uh, there was interesting, you know, kind of debate about self checkout at, at, at grocery stores, right, because now all of a sudden there's no more checkers, you have to check yourself out. And there's been kind of a lot of debate around that recently. But, you know, so we replaced a lot of, of lower end jobs, you know, with robotics or automation or self-service, um, but we haven't really touched the high end jobs yet so far. And, you know, the big thing with AI is, is, you know, hey, if you're a programmer, 
AI will program. It's not perfect, but you know, I can as a, as a as a novice programmer myself, I can go into Chat GPT and have it program, you know, stuff for our Simplevisor page, and I can send it to my coder and say, "Would you double check this and make sure it's good?" Um, but it saves a lot of time. Uh, you know, and the same thing, it, it can replace paralegals and lawyers, and it just you know, there's all of a sudden there's something here that potentially impacts the jobs at the higher end of the wage paying scale, and that's. Uh, that's a big cost savings for companies. So if companies are looking to shore up profitability, and again, I posted some charts on this just recently, looking at wage, you know, the wage to profit ratio, the profit to employee ratio. Um, you know, if if companies are fighting uh, in an environment, and again, we have this environment of of slower revenue growth. Uh, we talked about this last week in our in our article that since two thousand nine, revenue has grown in in total. Cumulative revenue growth in the S&P since 2009 is up 104%. Profit margins are up almost 400% on the operating, mm. on the operating front. So the way you create that disparity between a dollar's worth of revenue and a dollar's worth of operating earnings is through accounting gimmicks and cost controls and those type of things. So now all of a sudden, if, if, if the economy slows and revenue growth slows, the way I keep my profit margins up is by reducing my highest cost in my business, which is labor. Right. Um, you know, you're making me think, Lance. So <clears throat> that's um, good. The, the, yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, rarely happens, but yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I think increasingly more and more, I think of the people watching this video, right? Many of whom are professionals, they've just got this unease in their gut around AI, right? Where they 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 kind of know. The trajectory, which is what you just laid out, which is over time, it's going to increasingly creep up uh, the talent stack and, and and just start, you know, displacing jobs that that maybe people who really invested in their education and they got big degrees and they've got big titles at their work, they thought they'd be sort of forever protected and are now maybe thinking like that really might not be the case. Like, what's that going to mean for me, right? So we have we have three things that we just mentioned. We we mentioned. You know, Elon Musk just showed companies that they maybe need less people than they than they have otherwise assumed. Um, secondly, we've got the threat of AI and and other types of new technologies. And then third, we may have a recession here with a lot of layoffs. Right? You know, who knows? Um, as a financial advisory firm, you know, maybe like your personal finance guys, like like yeah. Richard and Danny, like. Do you, can you sit down with somebody who just says, "Hey, look, I'm I'm successful in what I'm doing right now, but I'm I'm worried that in one year, five years, whatever, I might get taken out of the game, at least in my current role, by one of these you know big threats that I just listed there." And is there any kind of pre-gaming or, or you know stuff I can be doing now to, in case that happens, I'm I'm going to be less impacted than if I just slam into it blindly. Well, this, look, we talk about this all the time, you know, and unfortunately, you know, people don't solicit a financial advisor early in life. You know, it, it's interesting, it, it, you know, in life, you need three things. You need a good accountant, a good lawyer, and a good financial advisor. And you get those things early in life. And yes, you're going to pay for it. But, you know, everybody goes right now because market just going up. It's like, oh, why don't you need a financial advisor? I just throw my money into some ETFs or low cost. And this is the big thing you hear about in the media all the time is like, oh, just buy some low cost ETFs. Why? Why pay an advisor? Just buy a low-cost ETF portfolio, you're fine. That's not what a financial advisor does. You don't need a financial advisor to pick stocks for you 
or to buy an ETF. Yes, you can do that on your own. What you need a financial advisor for, if he's good, is to be your financial advisor and say, this is what you need to be doing now. Unfortunately, what happens is that most people don't come to us until, oh, I'm getting ready to retire next week. I need to do a financial plan. And then we do the financial plan for them and go, um, you probably shouldn't be retiring next week because you're not anywhere near retirement, <laughs> you know, because you have all these other liabilities, you have all these other problems, you got health issues, you've got family issues, you've got all this other stuff that you need to factor in to this. And, and this is something that had he started his financial planning 20, 30 years ago and said, hey, if I want to be here by the time I get to retirement, I need to be doing these things now, right? Investing in in the markets and saving this money and you know not getting into debt and paying attention to my salary growth versus my expense growth, make sure I'm not, I'm not having any creep and doing a regular evaluation. But see, nobody wants to do that work because it requires you to be responsible for your money. And that uh, don't tell me what I can spend my money on. I want to just go YOLO, right? Yeah. You know, I want to do this and I want to do that. And that's fine. You know, nothing, nothing wrong with that, but you're going to pay the price for it eventually down the road. And what separates people out that have money versus don't have money, and this is the whole millionaire next door thing, is that there are some people that just naturally have this inclination of living within their budget, living within their means, and saving money and, and being cognizant of these things versus, you know, racking up a bunch of debt, making a lot of bad decisions, um, you know, over time. And, and this is what has happened to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people want to blame, oh, it's student loan debt. That's why I'm in trouble. No, student loan debt's not why you're in trouble. Um, nobody required you to take out the student loan debt. That was your decision and, and you did it. But that's not why you're in trouble. The reason you're in trouble is because you're spending too much money everywhere else in life and you're not paying attention to that one debt and focusing on getting it paid off. You're doing all this other stuff that you probably shouldn't be doing as well. It's never one issue that's a problem. It's always the culmination of all the bad financial decisions that people are making based on their income and their choices that they're making. All right, so, you know, to- And, and a good, I'm sorry, to wrap it up, a good financial yeah. advisor will help you with all of that. It's worth the money you'll pay them to do the financial planning. Sorry, now, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of, that's the rubber I wanted to have meet the road here for for viewers, right? Which is, um, look, you know, you, 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 you may have your money allocated in a way that you feel very comfortable with right now. Great, that's fine. And and I think when people think about financial advisors, um, they tend to think about, okay, great, how do I allocate my portfolio, right? And and you know, let's check in on that over a period of time. Yes, that's a very important part. But that that's really the doing part, right? That that's the what. Um, I I think this sort of financial planning part is very much the why and the how, right? Like, okay, why am I doing all this? Well, I want to have money in the future, more money in the future. Well, why? Because I have these life goals, right? I want to be able to retire at this point. I want to be able to buy this house. I want to be able to send these kids to college. I want to be able to, you know, take care of you know, these life dreams I have or these life needs, right? And A, that's what a financial advisor is really good for, you know, personal financial planner, right, is, is helping you think through all that because they have done this a zillion times they know what the process is like all of the rest of us are doing it for the very first time so we don't know what we don't know right so the questions they ask us the the exercises that they put us through super helpful from that standpoint they get your why locked in but then it becomes okay great well you're going to need about x amount to do all this right and then you get to the how well how am i going to do that well you're going to have to earn this much money and you're going to have to be able to get this much return on it right okay great so you know 
If I yeah, get earn X amount, I got to figure out how to do that. And then I can build a portfolio to give me the growth that yeah, I need on top of what I'm that's earning. Not, right? that, that's not exactly right, right? Okay, so correct it. Uh, no, no, is, and you're making the right point, but you kind of put the cart before the horse. And, and the, the, the issue is, is that the investing part is the least important part of the entire process. So the financial planning part tells you all the things that you need to be doing. The, the one thing that builds your wealth is saving money. That's how you build wealth. You build wealth by saving. And what everybody wants to try to do is not is, is save as little as possible and then have the market do all the work of creating right. the wealth. That And that's where you wind up taking too much risk. And that's where you wind up losing a bunch of money and doing all kinds of bad things. The saving the money, right? This is why, when, and I, you know, people email me and they're like, here, you know, here's where I am. What do I need to do? You need to start saving 30 to 40% of your income. Well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. But you're going to have to make some decisions, right? You can't be driving a Lexus today. You're going to have to be driving a 10-year-old piece of crap. But it's just part of it. Um, but you have to make these decisions, but you've got to start saving money. You've got to create cash flow by getting rid of debt. You've got to start saving a lot of money because saving is where your wealth comes from. And if you want to build a lot of wealth, you start a business that you eventually create wealth from. And that's where the vast majority of wealth is created is by people who started independent businesses. But you can still create wealth by saving. All the investing part does, all the investing part does is make sure that your savings equates to the inflation adjustment in the future it, it and make sure that your savings have the same purchasing power parity in the future. It is the least important part of your wealth building process. Okay. Very important to underscore. And I, I just got to add one more leg to the sure. stool for it to be complete. Right. And I mentioned it super briefly earlier, but it's the earning part, right? right. So you got to earn, you got to save what you earn, and then you got to protect it from inflation, right? right. And that's really what it is, right? Perfect. And again, that, that's where you get to the how, right? Where if you say, okay, these are my goals, then it's like, well, great. Then you got to be earning X, right? And you got to save this much of it, and then you got to keep it, you know, on pace with inflation by the investing part. So again, um, I, I don't want to beat this horse too dead, but um, you know, no, it's, it's a great it's, point. It's not just stocks and bonds, is what I'm trying to say. The role that a good a, a financial advisor financial planner can play for you. It really is your financial quarterback who is helping you put together the game plan, telling you where the goal line is and telling you, you know, how aggressive you got to be in your plays to get to where you want to go. Because otherwise yeah. you either got to, you, you better ratchet back your goals and just say, look, they're not that realistic. Let me come up with some realistic ones. Or you got to say, okay, great. I got to, I got to be more oh. aggressive than I thought in terms of how I'm going to be spending my time to earn. So I was, I was listening to a, a, a podcast this morning and um, he was talking about, he was, he was a Navy SEAL and he was talking about his time in the SEAL training and that, you know, his SEAL instructor was, a, it was legendary. Uh, it was a legendary SEAL instructor that he had. And he said, look, you know, you, everybody thinks the SEAL and the, the instructors are just going to be yelling at you and they're mean all day. He says, you know, my SEAL instructor started out, he said, look, every morning you get up, first thing you do is you make your bed. Second thing you do is you brush your teeth. Third thing you do is get to breakfast. You've already accomplished three things for the day. And now you've got your whole day ahead of you. And he says, I promise you that the rest of the day is going to suck. And all your job is to do is get to lunch. And if you can get to lunch, the rest of your day is going to suck. And if you can get to dinner, you've accomplished that. And then you get to go to bed again in that freshly made bed that you just made up this morning. And then tomorrow is going to be even more challenging, but you're going to get through it because you're not going to quit today. You're going to quit tomorrow. And the point he was making was, is that, and this, and this relates to life in general, is that I hear too many people complain about the fact, well, I don't make enough money. 
I can't save money because I don't make enough money. Hey, I get it. It sucks, right? And there's a and and we have choices though. We can. And I saw another video from a guy this morning. He's like, I'm just trying to figure out how to work less every day. It's like, why? Figure out how to work more. If you can, if you want to make more money, again, to your point about earning, right? If I want to earn more, I've got to develop a skill base that will earn me more, or I've got to work a couple of extra jobs. So if I'm working an eight to five job, I've got five to nine to do something else, right? That, that I can just start a business on the side or whatever it is to start earning more money. But the point is, is to how to and use your time figuring out how to earn more. Your challenge is just to figure that out every day. You can quit tomorrow, but today keep figuring out how to earn more and tomorrow figure out how to earn more and quit the next day. So, you know, the whole point to, to this is we've got to save more, but in order to save more, we got to earn more. And if we can earn more and save more by reducing our cash flow, we can build wealth. That's it. And it's just that simple. Okay. Um, this is taking me in what I think is going to be a really interesting direction for you and me. Not entirely sure the audience is going to want to come with us on it. So no. before I, I put up this next topic, um, let's talk about your trades real quick. Sure. Um, I'm presuming maybe you haven't done that much because we talked earlier about how you're you're kind of in a wait and see if this yeah. correction is going to happen, but you tell us. No, that's it. Um, we we have been adding exposure to our portfolio again over the last couple of months uh, on this rally. So uh, we're still, um, so our portfolio can swing uh, in terms of how much exposure we have to equities. We can go from 60%. So our, our, our portfolio model is 60-40. So 60% equity, 40% bonds. Uh, but that equity balance can swing from 60% all the way down to 15% equity but it can go to 70. So right now we're at about 55% equity in our portfolio. So we're sitting on some cash right now. And so we've been waiting for this correction to occur to put that 5% to work. And if we get a really good correction, then we'll probably go over 60% in terms of our total allocation. But no, no trades this week. We're, we're, we've been waiting for this correction to give us our next opportunity. Okay. Um, and and you know, before I get to my, my other crazy topic, um, let me talk real briefly with you about a piece that that Michael put out this week, um, which was talking about how, from his perspective, you can make a pretty good argument that bonds are looking better than stocks right now as a longer term investment. Yep. Um, and if I if I read his his article correctly, um, given where valuations are right now, you can make an argument that stocks, future stock market returns may not be as nearly as as robust as they were, say, for the past 15 years or so. And uh, he, he talks about how, um, you know, bonds obviously are, are offering more attractive return now than they than they have for a good while. Um, and he says that uh, that you can look at these these two current situations where how equities are valued and bonds are valued here. And there's a really interesting moment in time here where if you get the timing right, um, you could really make some good money here where he basically says, look, if you get into bonds right now, you're getting that safe return that we talked about. Um, and you've got that upside potential upside value if interest rates come down, right? If all that happens, um, and if stocks do indeed if they're overvalued right now. Uh, and, you know, when he talks sort of about a lost decade, it doesn't mean that they're just not going to 
go anywhere for a decade, that there's going to be some volatility, right? Potentially some material correction. So what he's basically saying is, is you could ride bonds right now, get paid, perhaps even get a really nice uh, rise in the, the, the value of the bonds. And then if the stock market gets sort of right priced, then you can shift into that that stock market at much better valuations. You can start getting out of bonds, and then you can eventually ride the recovery of stocks. And of course, he's looking at this as sort of a multi-year type of thing. It's not something he's saying you know you're going to deploy in the next couple of weeks. Right. But um, you know, Michael's been doing a very good job this year, particularly coming on this channel and educating our folks about bonds in general, how they work, but also the current um, relative attractive valuation of bonds and whatnot. I just want to see if there's anything about that piece that he wrote that you want to clarify for folks here. No, uh, the the important thing is is the rate of return in stocks over the last 13 years. Um, we've done a lot of work on this. Between 1900 and 2008, the average rate of return on stocks was about 8%, which is exactly what you would expect because that 6% of that return came from a capital appreciation, which equates to the growth rate of the economy over that period of time. Economy grew at about 6% on average. And the other 2%, make up the eight, came from dividends. So you, the 8% was uh, uh, very normal. And what you should expect, stocks, and in fact, uh, this is today's article that is on our website right now, talking about the stock market is detached from the economy because there's a very high correlation between the stock market and the economy long-term. You should expect that because the earnings for companies come from economic activity, right? It's what you and I spent. So over the last 13 years, though, the market has generated 12% in rate and the average rate of return. So in other words, the average rate of return has been 4% higher than what the economy can actually generate over the last 13 years. But in order to get that 4% additional rate of return, it has been dependent upon $44 trillion worth of monetary and fiscal stimulus, either through QE programs or bailouts or uh, you know, uh, infrastructure programs, whatever. So the question you have to ask yourself over the next decade or two or three is, can you continue to pump in $43 trillion over the next decade? So in other words, another $43 trillion to keep the economy stimulated, to keep things going and all that. If not, then your rate of return is going to fall back to what the economy can actually generate. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're having a huge bear market, but it may, you know, but a three or 4% rate of return, you know, out of the market may seem very disappointing compared to what you were getting, uh, particularly at a time where, you know, the, the bond market is going to be potentially doing a whole lot better than stocks. So, you know, that's his point. But the reality is, is that we've just had such an exacerbated, exacerbated rate of return in the markets because of all this fiscal and monetary stimulus over the last 13 years, you've got to ask yourself, is that repeatable in the future? If the answer is yes, A, it'll have to be larger. It'll have to be 60 to 80 trillion in the future. Right. It's just, there's a, a function of math in there, but it's got to keep growing at an exponential rate to support the rate of return. But if the answer is yes, we're going to keep doing that. Now you're talking about 60 to you know, $80 billion in, in government debt. Okay, maybe. Um, but if you if you think that's not possible, we can't keep generating that type of monetary stimulus, then rates of return have to fall. Right. Which which again, I just want to make sure I'm getting Michael's thesis out here, which is that um bonds may be a superior place to be mm -hmm. as the equity markets reprice for that potential lower growth right. environment. And so you spend your time 
in bonds until that repricing happens. And then you maybe get the ability to then start taking some of those profits and bonds, deploying them at much better valuations in the equity markets. And, and again, this is, he's painting with a, a broad brush for the long arc going forward here. But uh, he also was mentioning too, that timing is gonna be really important here. Again, it's kind of going back to why you wanna be working with a financial advisor who kind of gets these, these macro trends and follows them because they're gonna be the ones to tell you when to be where. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, and folks, that I highly recommend you go read that article and it's over there on uh, Lance's website. And for some reason, he hasn't actually mentioned it yet in this video. So I will mention it, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this last point, Lance, um, which I thought about you <laughs> coming out of this experience. And, and I know we're talking a lot about the role of a financial advisor in today's video, but it really did make me think of it. Um, so I think as I've told you, Lance, and I think as I've shared with the audience on Twitter and whatnot, you know, for the past year, I've been learning how to box, right? And I've been in boxing kindergarten. I mean, it's 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 amazing to me how many hours you put into this and and you're still just such a such a neophyte compared to people that have a lot of experience in the space. And Lance, I know you know this because you were yeah. an MMA fighter and you actually taught. Um, so I got to step into the ring for the first time ever two days ago. And I was put up against this burly guy, 30 years younger than me. And I basically just got my face pummeled, you know, for five. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I was going to learn and to basically be cannon, cannon fodder to, for this, you know, fighter who's in training to kind of just, you know, have some, someone throw some punches at him so that he could just get some practice in. Right. And what was amazing to me was um, the, the, exponential difference between somebody with little experience and somebody with a lot of experience. So I'd, I'd spent the past year learning, you know, all the basic fundamentals and per performing these combinations on the heavy bag, which doesn't punch back and doesn't move. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'm going against this guy and just every single thing I'm throwing, he can see coming, he can move, he can bat out of the way. I, I just, I couldn't touch the guy basically. Um, and I was doing everything that I knew to do, right? And of course, too, as soon as I get in the ring and he's throwing punches back at me too, my adrenaline goes up, my emotions flood, and you know, all the training I had goes out of my brain anyways, right? So it, it, it's, it, you know, on a, on a scale of deadliness, I was a one, he was a 99, right? <laughs> and, and he, you know, he, 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 he definitely, you know, would bop me in the face and stuff like that when I was putting my guard down and whatnot, but I mean, he could have ended this thing in the first six seconds, right? Um, he was very kind to me. Um, but, you know, I walked away from that just just having a huge appreciation for those who who have who have been in the ring enough to see enough combinations, to have enough experience, to be able to anticipate what's coming and to know what to look for and to know how to position themselves in advance to, to you know, not get hit or reduce the, the power of my, my, my blows. And as I left and I was kind of nursing my <laughs> my my wounds, I, I was thinking actually about how you would have loved, you know, to laugh at me there, given your your background. But but also like it's a direct analogy for a financial advisor, yeah. right? Where the, a lot of people we can we can read up, we can read all the books, you know, we can read the intelligent investor, we can we can trade our little model portfolios, we can tell ourselves what we think we'll do if the market does X. But when it's really happening. You know, there's so much that we just don't see, we don't pick up on, we get flooded by our emotions, whatnot, because we're either doing it for the first time, 
or um, we just haven't seen enough of these variations that we can still get surprised by the stuff that we don't know, where if you're an advisor who's been in the market, you've seen the tape do this a thousand times, you have a lot more confidence to say, okay, if this is happening and that's happening, then this is you know where I should likely position myself right now in advance of it. So I'll, I'll stop here and let you opine on this, Lance, but I actually think the comparison is a really direct one. No, no, it is. And and this is always the amazing thing to me is that, you know, you know, people expect that, you know, just because this is what I do for a living, that I never make a mistake, right? And I never, you know, buy something that doesn't immediately go up. And one of, you know, one of my favorite sayings is always like, you know, I've been doing this for 35 years and I haven't figured out how to buy stocks that only go up. It's just, you know, the point I've never been in a I've been in so many fights over in my life. Um you know, both on an amateur and a professional basis that, you know, I never left one fight unhit. I, I you know, you always get hit in a fight and you should always expect to get hit when you want to fight. The, 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 the difference between a good fighter and a great fighter is how many times did you walk out of the ring the victor? That's the important thing, right? Did you win the fight? It doesn't mean that you didn't get hit in the fight. Did you win the fight? And, and that means that you got more right than you got wrong over the course of that fight. And yeah, that's very much the case with investing. And I get, you know, people come to me all the time. It's like, oh, I've been buying these stocks for the last few months. I'm doing great in my portfolio. And then I'll see them about six months later and like they've lost, you know. I lost it all. Yeah, very, right? very common. I hear that all and, the time. And, and I'm like, like, oh, well, why did this happen? Well, I had all my money in this, right? Or I had all my money in that. And then the market changed, and that's what happens. And, and a good fighter, when you're fighting them, if, if, if you've got a particular you know, stance that you're using on, on your fighting technique or whatever, and they pick up on it, okay. they're going to change their style enough to yeah. just pick you apart, right? And that's what the market does over time, is that if the market is figures out that everybody's doing a certain thing, that's why when everybody's on one side of the trade, the market does something else. And you never know what's going to cause it, you know, Fitch comes out and downgrades the debt. Nobody was expecting that two weeks ago, right? Or even a week ago, nobody expected that to happen. But that's that curve that the market throws at you that you've got to take that hit and then say, okay, I got to just, do I need to do anything or not? And if I do, then what do I need to do? I need to reposition for it. But that's just part of the fight. The question is, this goes back to the financial planning part, is can you win the long-term fight? Can you, can you weather the beating to get to the end of the fight. And that's the important thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I have people contacting me all the time, you know, from wealthy on about their own wealth building needs and goals. And, and you know, a relatively common refrain is, well, why should I be spending, you know, a percent of my return? Why should, why should I be giving that to a financial advisor when I can just do the same thing? And what I tell them is, is, hey, if you can do exactly the same thing as a good, smart, experienced financial advisor, then yeah, you shouldn't work with one. You should yeah. pay with them. But most people can't. They don't have the experience, right? And, and to your well, point, like, you know, a fighter, you know which blows to to take because you know they're not critical blows, right? And and you, like you said, you know you're gonna you're gonna take some in a fight. What you want to be able to do is take the ones that aren't going to put you out of commission that also put you in position to then start scoring points, right. right? And so, you know, again, that's what you're doing here. You're talking about TLT. You're like, yeah, I know I'm going to take some blows early on because I'm not going to be able to predict the exact bottom day to get in on it. But I know that if I position myself right, I'm going to make a lot of money off this trade if it indeed goes the way that I'm pretty sure it's going to go, right? So um, my, my point is just like, you, you want to look for... I mean, look, 
a bad financial advisor is worse than none, right? So, so don't get a bad financial, you know, you really want to do your due diligence to find a really good one, but find a good seasoned experienced one. And, and I'm not trying to diminish, you know, someone who's starting out in their career and they're their twenties and they're trying to build a client base. But I would really say, you know, find somebody who's got decades of experience doing this folks. You want somebody who's got the scars of the learning process and whatnot and, and leverage that experience. Cause like I said, it's an exponential difference between somebody who's done very little of this versus somebody who's done a lot. It's not like they're 50% as good or twice as good. They're like a hundred percent better. Well, and again, you know, I want to just clarify one point because this is the most important part. I'm a portfolio. I'm not a financial advisor, right? So I'm a portfolio manager. That's what I do. I manage the portfolio. Danny and Richard and Jonathan Penn and, and Jonathan McCarty, those are financial advisors. Why you hire them is not for the portfolio management part. That's my job. Their job is the financial planning, making sure that you have the right plan in place, making sure that you're making the right decisions financially in the future, whether it's buying a car or, or putting, you know, buying insurance, what type of insurance? Do you need an annuity? Do you, you know, what are you doing with your healthcare plan? You know, are you drawing Social Security too soon or too late? You know, Medicare, Medicaid, all these other type of things. That's what you pay a financial advisor for, right? If you're, if you're good at, at managing your own stock portfolio, you don't need me right? But you still need a financial advisor to do the planning part to make sure that you're going to get to your goal on time, making sure that you save enough, you're creating enough cash flow, that you're hedging your risk. That's what a good financial planner will do for you. And if they're not doing that for you, then they're not a good financial planner. They should be doing that. All right. Great point. And obviously, same goes true with the portfolio manager, right? Right. You know? <laughs> Well, All I mean, right. no, I mean, my job is to try to build a portfolio that matches your goals. So that's it. If you tell me that you, if your financial plan says you need 4% a year, I'm going to build you a portfolio that is generate 4% a year, because that's the most amount of risk that you have to take. You know, think about it this way. If your portfolio, if your plan says you need 4% a year, and you say, well, Lance, you know, I'd really like five. Well, okay that's a 1% increase in return, right? So I need a I need to increase your rate of return by 20% to generate that 1% rate of return. So that doesn't mean that I have to increase the risk in your portfolio by 20%. There's an exponential increase in the amount of risk I have to take to generate that 1% additional rate of return. So now you're increasing your potential for loss by asking for more return than what your plan requires. And this is the problem for most investors and why, you know, after three major bull markets, most people don't have any financial wealth. A, they, they fail to save. A, they fail to invest properly and they take on too much risk. And they blow themselves up. Is they're trying to chase market returns that have nothing to do with their financial plan. So, again, if your financial plan says 4%, don't go banking out to get 8 or 10 because you're taking on so much risk. It's like driving a car full speed. You're eventually going to get in a wreck. And the question is whether or not you survive the wreck, right? That's that's the, the real question of the day. So you want to make sure and tailor your plan to the point that says, okay, my investment strategy has to match that plan. That's what my job is. That's what I do for our clients. Yeah. And I got to imagine too that um, kind of as a general rule of thumb here, right, that as an investor, individual investor, the more that we can earn and save, the less the ask that we have to put on the oh, investment cool. return part, and, exactly. and 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 so if if we can if we can manage to a lower needed rate of return, we can most likely hit our goal with less risk, right? 
So in other words, you know, I'm sure everybody would be like, hey, yeah, great, Adam. You know, we'd all love to earn more, right? Yeah, well, yeah. But I mean, the point is, if you overinvest on the earning part, you can increase your odds of hitting your your goal because the advisor doesn't need to take as much risk and they have a much easier job of making sure that what you need is going to be there by the time you get to your finish line in life or can help you get there faster, right? Yep. Which is even better, right? So, all right, well, look, um, we're going to have to wrap things up here, but um, I, I knew you were going to enjoy the whole pugilistic part of the uh, the discussion <laughs> here, Lance, given your, your backstory. Um, all right, well, look, uh, folks, uh, I think we've... Uh, definitely pummeled the horse dead on this one in terms of uh, the role that a good financial advisor and good portfolio manager can play in your lives. I uh, highly recommend that you find uh, both of those who can help you out here. If you've got a good one who's executing for you in the ways that Lance and I have just discussed here, great, stick with them. Um, but if you don't have one, or if you'd like to talk to one uh, who wealthy on uh, has a longstanding relationship with, uh, thinks is very good, uh, and uh, takes into account all the things that Lance and I talked about in this video, um, that consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the uh, financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, perhaps even Lance and his team there at RA themselves. To do that, just go fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Only takes a couple of seconds. These consultations are totally free, no commitment to work with these guys. They just do it as a public service to help as many people position as prudently as possible. Um, and if you've enjoyed uh, this week's uh, video, um, uh, if you're willing to support me while the East Germans come and collect me and take me off to the uh, the, the, the lineup that I get to appear in here with my number, um, do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, buddy, it's always great to end the week out with you. This week was no exception. I'll let you have the last word as we send folks off here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here next week. Uh, keeping it pretty simple. I like it. All right. Thanks again, Lance. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.